This morning we will be looking at the very end of 1 Samuel 14 and 1 Samuel chapter 15. We took a break from our exposition last week to look at Psalm 124 in the context of the flood. And so now that we're done with that, we start right back where we were. We just finished verse 46. We start with verse 47. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely without error. 1 Samuel 14, beginning at verse 47. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, against, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishivi, and Melchishua. And the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merab, and the name of the younger, Michal. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimahaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached himself to him. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Talim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havaliah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen, and of the fattened calves, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, 
for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told to Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. (coughs) Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord has sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, 
so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went up to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would use this word to teach us, to change us, to draw us ever closer to the Savior, to remind us that without the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are nothing. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. One of the things that the church has experienced in our day is a change in the way that the church is viewed by the culture and society. It used to be, decades ago, that there was a social advantage to being in the church. There were sales to be made by businesses. There was respect to be had by being a member of a church. But in today's modern day, it is a drawback to profess faith in Christ. To be a member of a church makes people look askance at you, to wonder who you really are, how smart you are. You see, what has happened today is the, uh, the advantage of appearance has been stripped away. The only advantage to following Jesus Christ is found in the substance. No one claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ to be more respected in society or to sell more insurance or to build their business. No, the only advantage is found in the substance of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And this, after all, is the truth of the Scriptures. This is the way it has always been. There have been times when we have been deceived into seeing importance in appearance. Saul was such a man. Saul was focused on the appearance that he had before Israel and before God. But he lacked the substance of a relationship with God. He did not understand the truth of the scriptures that obedience is better than sacrifice. And so what I would like us to see this morning from our text are three things that open up Saul's actions and give us a warning toward our own temptations. First, we will see the Lord's command that he gives to Saul. Second, we will see the Lord's regret at making Saul king over Israel. And third, we will see the Lord's judgment as it is poured out before Saul. The Lord's command, the Lord's regret, and the Lord's judgment. Well, we begin our passage this morning at the very end of chapter 14. This is a transitional point in the book of 1 Samuel. You may have wondered why the end of chapter 14 in 1 Samuel sounds an awful lot like periodic passages in 1 and 2 Kings. There's only one difference. Normally, 
when it describes the life of a king and all his relatives and who he warred against, it's after he's dead. It's a transition from one king to another. Here, Saul is still sitting on the throne. But from this point on, what we are seeing is the real end of Saul's kingship. It is over. Starting with the next chapter, chapter 16, our focus will no longer be primarily on Saul. It will instead be on the king that God will seek. On the king after God's own heart. Now, there is something important for us here at the end of chapter 14. It's not just a litany of tribes and battles and people. We have to understand that the end of chapter 14 describes for us what appears to be a very successful reign of Saul. He is a military man. He has significant victories. He defeats the tribes around him. The verdict of history is that Saul was a good king. The temptation we have is to try to value our lives and the lives of others around us by what man thinks, by what the history books write. Because in reality, Saul's kingship is a colossal failure in the only view that counts, the Lord's. And so as we live our lives... We must live our lives with a focus toward what the Lord has commanded, toward how the Lord will judge us. That is the only judgment that makes any difference at all. Well, the Lord comes to Saul and he comes to him with a command at the beginning of chapter 15. Samuel says, I have noted what the... What Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Now, we have to remember here first who Saul is. He is the king of God's people. And Israel is God's instrument on earth. Primarily, they are the instrument to show his grace to a world but they are also an instrument of his wrath and his justice. And so Saul is told to completely destroy Amalek. Now, who are Amalek? Amalek is a nomadic people who lived south of Israel. They lived in the Negev Desert and in the Sinai Desert. And they had attacked Israel during the Exodus. Just as Israel had departed Egypt... They had come up and attacked Israel, making no distinction with women and children. Actually, in the way of a coward, the Amalekites attacked the rear of Israel, where the stragglers were, where the sick and the old and the infirm were. And they had no reason at all to do this but hatred and wickedness. And you may remember the battle that ensued. As God told Israel that they would triumph over Amalek as long as Moses held up his staff. And you remember Moses held his staff up and as he did so, Israel was victorious. But then he began to grow tired and his arms began to droop. And Israel began to lose and to be defeated. And you remember Aaron and Hur came up on each side of Moses lifting up his arms so that Israel would win the victory. And on that very day, God judged Amalek. 
and he commanded his vengeance on that day 300 years before our text. And he repeated it in Deuteronomy 25. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you and did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, that makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? We don't like to hear about such destruction, especially a complete destruction. And so what this does is it causes some people to say, well, you know, the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. God somehow grows in his morality. He's a, he's a mean, vengeful God in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, he's a nice, good God of love. The problem with that is that God doesn't change. It also, by the way, ignores all of the passages in the New Testament that speak of hell and eternal damnation and destruction. And all of the passages in the Old Testament that speak of God's grace and loving kindness. It's just merely an attempt to come up with a quick answer to a difficult question. And the problem is, is that if we take this false view of God, it colors the way that we view Saul. We are ready to forgive Saul for not obeying God. Because after all, we wouldn't have given that command. So we can understand if Saul doesn't listen. But there are some things we must remember. First... Theologically, God does not change. He is always righteous. In the Old Testament, and in the New Testament, and in our day now. Second, judicially, Amalek was deserving of punishment. They had already been pronounced guilty. Thirdly, currently, Amalek had not changed. It's not as if they were paying the price for the sins of their forefathers and now they had become this great, God-fearing, kind nation. Samuel tells us in verse 18 that they were sinners. We read in verse 33 that their king was guilty of war crimes. Amalek continued in the way of sin because they rejected God and they deserved the punishment that a just and perfect God had decreed upon them. But more importantly for us here today, we need to find comfort in God's vengeance. Not in our vengeance, but in God's vengeance. You see, that is a part of the gospel. The gospel tells us that God will put down all who oppress his people. That God will rid the world of all sin and iniquity. That he will punish the evildoers. You see, the gospel proclaims not only the favor of the Lord and grace to his people. The gospel also pronounces the day of the Lord and his vengeance. And the problem is when we forget that God is righteous in his vengeance. Then we begin to see no need for his grace in our lives. Because we think somehow 
God is too nice to deal with sin. And so therefore, we don't have to worry about that at all. Vengeance is the Lord's. The next thing we see is a failure of obedience by Saul. Now, as the king, Saul is called to carry out God's command. Now, we have to remember, Saul was the king because the Lord had made it so. Samuel reminds us of that in verse 1. The Lord sent me to anoint you. You're only king because God made you king. The second thing Saul should know is that he was to listen to the voice of the Lord through Samuel. Now, the... Hebrew here is very vivid. Listen to the words of the Lord. The word listen has within it the context of obey. Now, you don't need to be a Hebrew scholar to understand this. I think all you need to be is a parent or a kid. Because you've all heard this in your home, right? Are you listening to me? Are you listening to me? Right? And that doesn't mean, did the audio waves come from my mouth and hit your eardrum, and did you hear the noise? That's not what that means. That means, did you do what I told you to do? That's what listening is, right? Practically. That's what it is in the Bible. Saul is to listen to the Word of God. He is to obey the Word of God. You cannot stand distant from the Word of God. You cannot observe God's Word. You either obey it or you disobey it. That's the only option given to you. Saul is reigning over not his people, but the Lord's people. Right? So he's made king by the Lord, and he doesn't even have his own people. He is king over the Lord's people. And so he is to hear the sound, the Hebrew says, the sound of the word of God. Now, this is helpful to us, I think, by way of a word picture. Because we are surrounded today by a lot of different sounds, aren't we? There's a lot of noise in our background that keeps us from thinking clearly, from hearing the word of God, from obeying the word of God. There's the chatter of the news media. There's the chatter of the culture. There's the chatter in our neighborhoods. There's what we see in television and in film. There's what we read on the internet. All of those are voices that can drown out the sound of God's word. But the word of the Lord here is clear to us. We must listen to His words, not our words, or the words of others. So what did Saul do? Well, Saul started out pretty well. In verse 4, we see that he gathers up the troops. And then in verse 6, we see that he took care to not harm the Kenites. He actually goes out of his way to make sure they're not harmed. You may wonder to yourself, why is he so concerned about the Kenites? Well, there's two reasons. First, did God say, destroy the Kenites? No. So you listen to God. The second thing is, you may know who the Kenites are. The Kenites were the people of Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses. And they had been a people who helped Israel after the Exodus. So Saul spared them. 
Now, it's important for us to understand this and see this. Because oftentimes, we think the only thing that is wrong is complete disobedience. We have to understand in this context that Saul started out obeying. He just didn't carry it through the way he was commanded to. It's not as if when you listen to the Lord and his word, 67 is a passing grade. There are two grades, 100 or zero. Those are your only choices. Now, what did Saul not do? What he did was he spared the king and the best of the animals. Now, think about that for a moment. He didn't spare any of the people. He didn't spare the the bad animals, the despised, the worthless, the lame, the ones who didn't have a fine coat or sheen. Now, the text is very clear here. In verse 9 it says, Saul and the people spared Agag. But you have to understand, the driving force here is Saul. The verb spared is third person singular, not plural. It doesn't say all of the, all the people did the sparing. It says Saul, and the people went along with it, spared Agag and these animals. Saul had clearly disobeyed the command of the Lord. And it's not as if he didn't understand the command, because again, he had carried it out on all of the people. The only people and things that Saul spared were those things that would be of an advantage to him. He spared Agag because there would be a political advantage. He spared the best of the cattle and the oxen and the sheep. Why? Because he wanted them. He didn't care about the lame or the ones that would make a really tough Lamberger. No. All he wanted was the best. There was clearly an ulterior motive here. So, what will happen now? What is the consequence of Saul's failure to obey the Lord? What will happen now here is the Lord's regret. You see, our first thought about Saul's failure is that, well, at least he mainly obeyed God. He did the bulk of what he was supposed to do, right? That's sometimes our standard. We even have a phrase for it. We say, that's good enough for government work, right? Okay, it isn't really done properly the way it was supposed to be, but it's good enough, right? That's, that's our first tendency. Cut, call some, cut Saul some slack. How angry could God be after all? Saul had tried his best. He had defeated the, Amal- the Amalekites. And this is exactly the temptation that we face. You see, we are willing to obey right up until the point that it costs us. We are willing to obey right up until the point that we think it stops being reasonable to obey. Then we expect God to bow to our judgment, that we are able to interpret what he really needed or wanted, what he should have commanded. And it's good enough for us. God, it should be good enough for you. And instead, what we get is a surprise from the Lord. This may even be harder to understand than the command earlier in chapter 15. 
The surprise is in verse 10. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Now, as you hear that, do you ask yourself the question, how can God, who knows all things, who knows the future, regret something? How can God change? How could he repent of doing something? And so you see here, it is this language in this passage, along with similar language in Genesis chapter 6, in which the Lord says that he regrets having made man, because man's ways are all sinful all the time. And what this leads to, is it leads some to deny who God is. Now, the technical term for this is open theism. But what it means is that man's free will is really supreme. That is, that God doesn't even know how things are going to turn out. God is constantly surprised. Not only is he not in control, he's kind of subject to the whims of men. But the problem with this is, not only does that deny the sovereignty of God in his word, it puts in doubt every one of his promises. If God doesn't know how things are going to turn out, if God can be surprised, how do we know he has prepared a place for us? How do we know that Jesus will return? How do we know that every tear will be dried? Because we can't be sure. It might turn out otherwise. Maybe God doesn't know. Maybe Satan actually wins. You see the not only the theological problem with this, but the practical problem with this. I don't know how anyone can live with this theology. Better yet to lean on the scriptures. Isaiah chapter 46 says this, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, Things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Does that sound like a God who can be surprised? Who has to wait to see what you might do before how he could react? Well, then the question comes how do we understand this? How do we understand the language that God regrets having made Saul king? Because obviously, Saul being king and his fall is something the Lord knew and knew would happen. Think of it this way. Just because God knows things in advance does not prevent him from experiencing the appropriate reactions and emotions. We should not think of God as cold and calculating, like a machine, simply because he knows all things. He's not a computer. You see, this language here doesn't mean that God is variable about sin. It means he sorrows over sin. Dale Ralph Davis puts it this way. It does not depict Yahweh flustered over a lack of foresight, but Yahweh grieved over a lack of obedience. God has emotions. He loves. 
He hates. He is grieved. We have emotions because we are made in the image of God. Now, God's emotions are not passions that drive him to do things he would otherwise not have done with his will, as sometimes happens to us. We talk about the heat of the moment and losing our mind. That never happens to God. His emotions are always perfectly in tune with his mind and with his will. But there's another reason why I think God speaks this way. He speaks to us in a way that we can understand so that we can have a proper response to things. God wants us to know that he takes seriously obedience to his word. He wants us to know that he takes disobedience seriously. What was God sorrowful about after all? It was that Saul had disobeyed his word. We should never think for a moment that God is indifferent about sin. Or that he is indifferent about our obedience. Now we often try to convince ourselves of that, don't we? When we're in the middle of some sin, we say, well, you know, it's, it's kind of a very small sin. It probably doesn't matter too much to God. Look at all the people around me sinning in much bigger ways. I'm sure God will understand and just wink at this. You see, God wants us to know and to understand how seriously he takes obedience to his word. But this doesn't mean that we're to be passive either. Because Samuel accepts the judgment of God in verse 11. But look at how he is described. Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. Now, why is Samuel angry? Why is he crying out to the Lord in prayer? Is it because he was asking for forgiveness for Saul? Is it because he was asking for protection for Israel now that they were about to lose their king? Is it that he was asking for himself because he was about to have a very difficult confrontation with the king of Israel? If you've ever been in a confrontation with someone, you know how much you would like to get out of it. Right? What can I do to avoid this unpleasantness? What's the answer to this? I think the answer is yes. It's all of these things. That's why Samuel goes to the Lord. He's crying out to the Lord. Remember that the most significant act of his ministry was the establishment of the monarchy with Saul. He's seeing his life's work, after all, kind of go down the drain. And all of these other things are swirling around him. And so where does he go? He goes to God. You see, when you are in difficult times, don't ever let anyone tell you you should be less emotional. That you should be calm and not worry about things in the sense that you don't think about them. There's a cure for that. Read 150 Psalms in the next week and come back and see me. The Psalms are full of rejoicing, of crying out to God in anguish, of crying out to God in terror, of sadness and tears. You see, God has made us to respond to our world with emotions and to cry out to Him. God doesn't expect you to be a robot either. 
You see, all of this comes about because of a failure, not just of action, but of the heart. And so, when Samuel comes to be with Saul, we immediately are shown a picture as if with an x-ray in Saul's heart. Now, remember the context. Samuel has been struggling all night in prayer. He doesn't want to have this confrontation. He's aware of how horrible the situation is. Now, Saul knows exactly what was commanded. And he knows he hasn't done it. Now, I want you to picture in your mind's eye Saul sauntering up to Samuel. He's got a kick in his step. He's smiling from ear to ear. Oh, Samuel! How blessed you are of the Lord. I've done everything that God asked me to do. By the way, did you see the monument I made to myself about how good and obedient I am? Could you imagine that? How self-congratulatory Saul is. He actually thinks he deserves praise for what he has done. Now this is a lesson for us not to trust our own judgments. You see, it's easy for us to obey God when we can do it our way. That's actually exactly what the Pharisees did. They twisted and changed the commands of God into forms they liked and they knew they could obey. And they said, this is really what you need to do. Not what God said, but what we say. And imagine that. They fashioned their own rules that they were able to obey. And how did Jesus, being very God himself, react to this? Angered him, didn't he? He did not want to be mocked as the true and living God. And so, Samuel, you could just imagine, as Saul comes and speaks. I love the way he puts this. Pastor Rick Phillips says, This is the greatest one-line comeback in the Bible. Saul is all excited for himself. I did everything you asked me to do. And Samuel just looks at him and he says, Then why do I hear the sound of sheep and the sound of cattle? Pretty obvious, right? You're supposed to kill all the sheep. The sheep shouldn't be making noise. You're supposed to kill all the cattle. I shouldn't hear any mooing. Old McDonald's should be pretty bored. There should be nothing going on here at all. Right? It's very simple. And you can almost see Saul's face drop and the wheels start spinning. If Saul had a smartphone, he would be on a social media manager right now. He would be trying to get a political handler. You've got to help me here. We've got to spin this. I've got to explain. He hears the sheep. And by the way, he hasn't even heard about Agag yet. How am I going to spin this? You see, Samuel says something that's pretty simple. It's something that actually kids should understand. Kids, look at me here for a minute. When your parents tell you to do something, do you think they actually want you to do the thing they said or something else? Pretty much they want you to do the thing they said, right? If you do something else... You're not going to get praise for it. Anybody should understand that. Apparently Saul doesn't. Saul thinks he can do things his way. And it's because 
It's about more than his actions. It's actually about Saul's heart. He wanted to be supreme. He wanted to call the shots. He thought God would be satisfied both figuratively and literally with the leftovers. He'd give God the lame ones. He'd give God the unimportant people. But anything of value, the king, the best sheep, the best cattle, the best ox, oxen, guess who gets to keep them? Saul does. Who does Saul think he is? And then what happens is Saul fails to even own up to this. Now, we don't know what would have happened. Although I think we get some insight from a story of a later king who when confronted with his sin, did not make up an excuse. He owned up to the fact that he was the man. You remember when Nathan confronted David? What did David respond with? He responded by repenting and by seeking the Lord and by going to him in prayer and by confessing his sin. You could read all about that in Psalm 51. Not Saul. Instead, Saul strikes up an argument. While we weren't looking, Saul went to law school. Saul says that I have done. Samuel says, you were supposed to do this and you were on a mission. And he says, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission. (coughs) And then he makes up an excuse. He shifts the blame in verse 15 to the people. He says... The people spared all these animals. And the people have done this to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But everything else I did right. Everything else I did right. Let's focus on, let's focus on what's positive here, Saul says. And he tries to distract the people. He says, it's okay because I was going to sacrifice these animals. Now, the text points us to this, that this is solely an attempt to spin. I don't know if any of you believe Saul actually was getting those animals ready for a sacrifice. If you do, I have some flooded land in the Barker Cypress Reservoir to sell you. Because that is not what is going on here. You see, he's trying to shift away. He's trying to distract. And what happens is Samuel makes clear what God really wants in verse 22 and 23. He says, God is worshipped when he is obeyed. And formal worship cannot substitute for the worship of the heart. He says something that actually should chill us. He says, disobedience is idolatry. So you see, our tendency to think, well, as long as we're here on Sunday morning, as long as we sing the hymns with gusto, as long as we pray to the Lord, as long as we do what we should do in the church, we're okay. God will give us kind of a wink and a nod the rest of the week. This shows the falsehood of that kind of thinking. Disobedience and a lack of submission to God is like worshiping another God, Samuel says. The worst possible sin you can imagine. It's breaking the first commandment. This is a hard word for us. Rebellion, being idolatry, but it does put our lives in a different light and gives us some direction as to how to live. 
Thirdly and briefly, we see the Lord's judgment. Well, now what we have here is Saul at least acknowledges his sin. Now, it's a long way from being the proud man that he was in verses 12 and 13. But in verse 24, at least he acknowledges, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. But what does that mean? At first glance, we might be willing to pronounce forgiveness on Saul, because after all, we would like people to forgive us quickly, right? But repentance is more than words. Do you remember John the Baptist and how he spoke of the need for fruit of repentance? That just because you say you've repented, you have to show it as well. It's the fruit of a heart that is repentant and in a relationship with God. Now notice also Saul's words here. Even in his so-called repentance, he blames the people. It's kind of a backhand slap. I'm sorry for sinning, but I really wouldn't have sinned if it weren't for the people. You know, that's like when someone comes up and says, I'm sorry that you were offended by what I said. It's that backhanded apology. I'm sorry you were dumb enough to be offended. Nobody else should have been. But if you're dumb enough to be offended, I'm sorry you were offended. Right? It's not a real apology. It's not a real repentance. And look who also he asks to forgive him. Do you see this? He asks Samuel to pardon his sin. Not God. He's not even dealing with God. He's not even asking God for forgiveness. All he really wants is for Samuel to say, everything is okay, let's just go back to normal. That's all he wants, is the appearance. But Samuel reminds Saul of the judgment of God. He repeats it in verse 26. And all Saul cares about is the image. He's willing to grovel to keep his image. He grabs the robe of Samuel and it tears off. But you see, all he wants in the end is for Samuel to appear before the elders so that everyone else thinks it's normal. All he wants is the appearance that he's still the king and still in charge. He doesn't want the political fallout with the elders. I want you to see something else that's crucial here. It's one of the reasons why we need to read our Bibles carefully. Do you see the pronoun that Saul uses over and over again with God? He keeps saying to Samuel, Your God. It's not my God. It's not our God. Your God. You, Samuel, go to your God and fix this for me. It's not a real repentance. And what that brings about is a fearful judgment. Now, we can be like Saul at times, wishing that problems go away, wondering why God makes such a big deal out of certain things. We can be willing to repent on the surface, but the real danger is that we do not know the true and living God. Because it is a reflection of a lack of knowledge of God to not know his commands, and to not know what grieves him. And the Bible warns us specifically about this. It tells us not to grieve the Holy Spirit. And so Saul still does not see the danger. He doesn't see that the real danger is judgment from God, not losing face. He had the chance to repent. Now, he might not have kept the kingdom, but he had the chance to save his soul. 
by owning up to what he had done, by seeking forgiveness, by truly repenting. But he won't do it. And so we're given one final picture of this right before Saul. Agag comes up, just like Saul did. He's grinning from ear to ear. He's thinking, whoo, he escaped the frying pan. Now, there's no way they're going to kill me now. You know, the softies here, the God man, the pastor, he can't be, he's a soft guy. And Saul needs me too much in the future. Everything is going to be okay, right? He's fooled himself. He thinks that God forgets what he's done. He thinks that his heart doesn't matter. He thinks all that matters is manipulation of circumstances. And so Samuel sure shows him otherwise, doesn't he? You have a vision in your mind of verse 33? Samuel getting out this big broadsword, hacking him to pieces? That's the judgment of God. It's not fun. It's not clean. It's not something we should look forward to. We should run from it. You see, what the end of this story shows us is that the Lord is serious about His commands, His judgments, and His word. And we cannot presume that He will ignore us, and we cannot ignore Him. Our only hope is found in the King who always obeys the commands of the Lord. Our only hope is in Jesus. Jesus who took our punishment upon himself so that we might be found forgiven. And he calls on you today to repent to the heart, not the surface. To trust him wholly by faith. Not to worry about appearances. Are you ready to do that now? Are you ready to give up appearances? And to enter into true repentance, true faith, living in a true relationship with the Lord God Himself. You see, it is only in the end the substance that matters. Appearances fade away. Appearances can be manipulated. Trust the Lord Jesus Christ today with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul. It is the only way to escape the coming judgment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we are thankful that you have revealed to us this story of judgment and disobedience, that we might learn from it, that we might come after you, that we might seek you all the day long. Lord, show us your grace. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen.